0: The following sermon is from Evangel Temple Youth Ministries. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit etchurch.org forward slash youth. So chapter one, we really see this. What happens is um, this family is hit hard with a lot all at once. This Famine comes where they're really forced into this godless place called Moab. And they're they're just really seeing that pain and and hurt is real. And tragedy hits, but God is still faithful. And so um, that was week one. Week two, we see really the faithfulness of Ruth. Through the pain, through the hurt, she is also faithful to God. And she is faithful to Naomi to go back to a place that um, culturally... We talked about this just briefly. Um, look, I, I am, just as anyone else, you know, women's independence. You know, women can, in this culture, they can, you know, have a job. And, and, and that's we're working away from other things that have really oppressed women in those ways. But the reality of it is, in Naomi's culture, where she was going back to Judah, you don't have a guy in your life, a male figure in your life. Um, life is hard. Life is hard. So, one... Socially, you don't have much of a standing, a voice. Uh, socially, um, economically, you can't work and provide. Um, and then this whole idea of, you know, if you have an heir, if you have these, these generations of people, right? Have you ever noticed? It's naming the men. And, and so without the men, she almost doesn't have a face in, in history. And so now she has lost her husband. She has lost um, her brother-in-laws. She has lost uh, her father-in-law, so all these men that were in her life, she's lost them, and now she's going to a culture that wasn't accepting Moab, wasn't any better, but now she's going to Judah, and it wasn't a great, great possibility that she was going to have a flourishing life in this culture, and yet she's still faithful to Naomi, and then we see in This past week, week three, we looked at Boaz. This man that shows up on this scene is crazy, Uh, just so polar opposite of where the culture is. He was so... he was stepping outside of just what the law would require of him to let a foreigner pick up the grain, you know, these little leftovers, and he just gives her abundantly, and he, and he invites her to sit um, at his table, though she's a Moabite foreigner, a woman that is unclean, that wouldn't be fit to worship alongside him, and he's just welcoming her, and he's calling her his daughter, and he's just so loving, and really we see that he is resembling so much God's love for us. And so I hope some of this is kind of coming back into your mind. Um, Boaz shows so well God's acceptance and love for us, though we are unfit or undeserving for it. And so um, that's kind of where we're left off. The end of chapter 2, it says that uh, so she stayed throughout the harvest. It, so she got there right at the very beginning of the harvest. They were harvesting barley, and, and, and they said, why don't you stay the whole time, and we'll take care of you, we'll provide for you. And so that is where we left off, and so now we're starting back up here, um, but we're starting off with a this this ray of light, this possibility that Boaz might be this man that will take care of and provide for and redeem. This idea of taking what is broken and hurting and just in this horrible position and making it into something um, new and good again. Um, And so Ruth is in this sad, just grieving state, and she is hopeful that Boaz might be the man that can... Well, one, be a man in her life, but then also give her um, a son or daughter and and just give her back maybe what she was hoping for, the type of life that she wanted with her previous husband. And so um, there's this ray of light, this excitement. And so she's going to be sticking around him. The question is, though, what will she do in that? And so we're going to be looking then um, the entire chapter 3, but we're going to be going pretty quick through it. So um, it says... Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? See, that whole idea of I need to find... I need to find um a man, so you'll be taken care of. Man, I find you rest. Now isn't Boaz your relative? Now isn't Boaz your relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Winnowing barley is pretty much the, the final stage. Okay, I had to look that up. I'm not a big agriculture guy, but I looked it up. Winnowing is the last part, okay? You're picking in the fields and you get to it, the threshing and winnowing. Last little part. Wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes, but don't let the man know you are there until he is finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. <laughs> and so I want you to picture this, okay? Um, it can be sometimes whenever you're reading that you kind of miss out on um, maybe the emotion in it or something, uh, but... What Naomi just told her to do was, hey, we got to, I got this great idea. We're cutting it close on the end of this harvest. They're going to make us leave the fields. We're not going to be around Boaz anymore. We've only got so much time, this window of time. So it's so important that you get a man, that you get married. This is so important to them. So she says, look, we're going to have to be really proactive here. We're going to have to take matters into our own hands. I'm not kidding. She says, I need you to put on, and I was reading about this in these commentaries, as if she's getting married, okay? Her best clothing, these perfumed oils, really expensive stuff she's putting on right now. And so it's almost as if she's getting dressed for a wedding. Just picture this. I mean, this is crazy. And she says, just go. Whenever he's already fallen asleep, that's the perfect time. Just crawl underneath where his feet are covered up, and then he'll tell you what to do. Because it's like, I don't know what he's going to do, so um, from there, uh, just wing it. I don't know what his response is, but from there, just you'll know what to do whenever he responds. Not sure how he's going to respond. Okay, so that is what Naomi says. That is a crazy plan because she is that desperate that Ruth would find a husband. Because finding a husband, again, in this culture, it means everything for these women. It's just the reality of it. That's just the reality of it. And so Naomi comes up with this crazy plan. But what's even crazier is Ruth's response. So Ruth said to her, I'll do everything that you say. Like you would think mostly whenever a parent would say something like, oh, I've been, your, I've been uh, in your shoes before. Why don't you go and do this? And then we're like, Mom, you don't understand. Just stop. But she's like, oh, yeah, sure. No. That sounds good. I'll do that actually. And so she says, I will do everything that you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything that her mother-in-law had charged her to do. After Boaz ate, drank, was in good spirits, he went in to lie down at the end of the pile of barley, and she came secretly, uncovering his feet to lie down. Still, picture this. At midnight, Boaz was startled, rightfully so, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? and i think it probably was a little less uh, just relaxed as ah who are you um, it was again startled okay so this was her plan and, and and i don't i don't understand maybe why she was so willing to just jump in on this plan other than the fact that she like her mother-in-law was so desperate for her to find a husband that would provide what she Needed, what she felt like she needed for a fulfilling life, a purposeful life, a quality life. She wanted to find a husband, that all those things would come about, what she maybe had been robbed from whenever her husband died, her brother-in-laws died. So she was willing. Desperate times call for desperate measures, am I right? Maybe not. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Believe it or not, this story actually I can kind of relate to. I know. I know. I can kind of relate to it. And let me explain to you how. Okay. So my family, living back in Kansas City, the family I grew up with, we were a foster family. And so we had a lot of kids coming in. Um, and so just a lot of stories because of that. All these different life um, journeys. And all of them, honestly, they just kind of break your heart. They're, it's sad situations um, that you're just like, man, we want to do everything we can for you. Well, the first two of them we ended up adopting, and we're like, okay, we got to slow down on this whole like when we take them in, we're just gonna keep you for a while, and then we end up just falling in love, adopting them. And so um, we kind of had to hone in on that, or else we're gonna have 20 kids in the house. So, um, but we've went through a lot of just having you know foster kids, all these years of being a foster family. Well, we ran into this one family, this um, one family, two groups of two kids. My goodness, if I can get that out, two kids, um, a sister and a brother, Tony and Alexis. And Alexis, whenever I read this story, honestly, it just boom, Alexis, like it just jumped in my mind because Alexis, um, she didn't have much of boundaries, and um, we had the locks on our doors. Didn't stop Alexis. I, I, multiple nights, I, I got really angry with her because you know it's just like, hey, Alexis, I'm sleeping. I would wake up and she would just be right there, and I'm like, whoa, what are you doing? Like Boaz, like, who are you? Like That wasn't my response, Um, and so I finally I'm like, Alexis, get out of my room for the 14th time, and it wasn't just me, though. Um, My sister, too. My sister woke up one time to um, her hair just being played with, and um, that's like straight out of a scary scary movie, Uh, but it happened right in the Whirly household, and um, so I can relate to it, but isn't that crazy? That's crazy that, that Ruth would go about and do this extreme, uh, but that's how desperate she was to get uh, Boaz to marry her. And so wh- this is what she says, verse 9. Whenever he says, who are you? More like, who are you? She says, I'm Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. So now we've got to stop here, and I have to explain this a little bit. This is the part that I emailed, about my, my, emailed my professor about. She said, take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer. So now, look, her intentions, her intentions were to get married and very soon after, like nine months after this night, uh, have a son with this guy. So that was her intentions. Um, she's like, hey, take me under your wing. Um, I want to have you as my husband. I want to have um, a son or daughter. I want to build a family with you. Um, and honestly, uh, it's reasonable, it's understand- It's understanding, like it's Understandable. She, she was grieving. She was feeling like she had been robbed from all these things. She wants a husband. And so it's completely practical, I mean, for the sake of social standing, for the sake of economics, to have an inheritance to pass down to somebody, um, right, to keep your legacy, to keep your name going. Um, because a man, if so her ex-husband that died... Um, if he didn't have an heir to his name, it's almost as if in their minds that he had been blotted out from history. And so out of honor, for, for the very simple reason for honoring her husband that had died, she wants to get a son now in his name, and it would be his last name, and to keep his legacy going. If she didn't, it would be dishonoring to him because he, in effect, would be blotted out from history. And so there's all these good reasons, right, socially, economically, for her, this is very practical, but out of honor for her husband, right, out of grief for missing having a husband, all these good and understandable reasons why she would want to say, you know what, take me under your wing, marry me. And in this culture, they actually could. If they were both like, yeah, I want to get married. You want to get married? Yeah, I want to get married. Boom, we're married. That was that. That was. You could do that, and then you could do all marital things at that point, okay? So, I mean, it could be that quick. Um, So she had good intentions, and she she was not at fault for wanting all those good things to come about, to have a son, to have an heir for her husband that died, to have an economic standing, to have social, uh, a voice, all these things. She's not at fault for wanting those things, but I think maybe if we were just to stop, and this is what I want you to get if we were just to stop and think maybe maybe the threat that she was facing whenever she would come to him and say hey would you marry me would you take me under your wing maybe the threat that she was facing was that she was looking to boaz for something that she should have known god was providing for her already that she would maybe replace god with Boaz, that she would be so needing what Boaz has to offer, that she would forget that God would be there and be her provider, that He would be there for her, that she would turn to Boaz for something that God would already provide her. In verse uh, or chapter two, you can look it up if you have your Bible in front of you. Um, it's not going to be on the screen, but in chapter two, verse twelve. Okay, a while ago, whenever her and Boaz just met, I want you to catch this. This is really cool. I think, in chapter 2, whenever her and Boaz first met, so at the very beginning of the harvest months ago from at this point, whenever they first met, their first interaction, he goes, may the Lord bless you, may the Lord provide for you, the Lord that takes you under his wing. That's what he said, the exact same phrase she just said. So he said that the very first interaction, he said, the Lord, would he bless you, the God that takes you under his wing. And now, months later, as she's just been seeing, oh, Boaz would provide, Boaz would, Boaz would give. Oh, Boaz would just provide me the life that I've been wanting, that I've been desiring, that I've been taken from. And then she comes to him, and it slips out of her mouth exactly what he said before. Would you take me under your wing? And I think, really, it's completely understand- understandable that she would do that. But it maybe is supposed to remind us, the readers of Ruth, to think back and be like, isn't that what... Isn't that what Boaz said, that God would be the one that took her under his wing? Didn't Boaz say that? And now she's going to Boaz saying that, would he be the one to take Ruth under his wing? And it maybe makes us think, did she forget that God had her under his his wing? It It makes us think, at least it made me think, did she forget that God already had his wing over her, that he was providing for her, taking care of her? I'm not saying it doesn't say explicitly that she did. I'm just saying that it might be a threat that she was facing. I think legitimate good things, things that are understandable, things that are reasonable, things that are practical, things that are good-hearted, things that are are awesome to have, to have a husband, right? To have a, a, a social standing. It's not crazy. Those are good things, legitimate things that you would want. But I think... They can turn bad whenever they take the place of God in your heart and in your life. I think whenever Boaz took the place of God and her understanding of this is how I'd be provided for, this is how my life could turn from uh, this brokenness to this new life, Boaz is the one that can do that. Boaz, would you take me under your wing? Whenever she... Change that in her mind. Now, not seeing that God is the one that has taken her under His wing, that God is the one that will provide, that God will be the one that blesses her when she has looked to Boaz and now seen that Boaz will take me out of this this place of despair into this new life where I can get everything that I need. That's when something so good, my husband, can turn bad because it's replaced God from His rightful place. In her life and I think honestly that that is complete, completely relatable to us. I think um, a, a game, okay, a video game, I know there's a lot of video gamers in here. Um, sports, athletes. yeah, Austin. Michael. Ward. Cool. A game or or sport. all these people love them, right? And they're, they're fun. They're, they're a lot of enjoyment. But I think as soon as you see that as your greatest source of joy, the thing that you look forward to the most in the day, is now turned from something that is good and joyful to now something that is never been. It, it, it was, it's in a place where it was never intended to be in your life. The thing that brings you the most joy, the most excitement, the thing that you look forward to the most. Uh, affirmation from friends. From family, from loved ones, uh, something that is so needed, right? The body of Christ building up one another, affirmation, being there for one another, just affirming them, encouraging. This is good things. But as soon as that becomes your primary source, your primary source of confidence, well, now it has turned from something good to what it is never intended to be. God should be our primary source of joy, our primary source of confidence, the one that we know has created us, and he's is, he is the one that gives us a new defining life and a purpose, that he's the one that gives us confidence that we have our identity built in him, but now when our identity is built on other people affirming us, is no longer a good thing. It's actually something that would deter us and bring us away from God. Another one: attention from people, right? We want attention. We like we like people noticing us and and caring for us and being there and and just having this this body of people that would recognize you, right? Call you by name. Those good things, but if it's your main source of comfort, it was never intended to be that. I think we like Ruth was really. Th- she had a threat of making Boaz an idol that would be placed before God, that he would provide for her something that, that God could provide so much better. I think we also have that threat to make something, we put that in our lives before God. It's idolatry. We, uh, this, this quote here, I read it from Tim Keller uh, this past week, and it says, we think that idols are bad things. We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. I think we all have a heart that naturally turns to other things that provides for us what God should be the primary provider for. All of our hearts, I think, are naturally turned to idols to provide for us things that are good, things that are just, that we need encouragement, right? And affirmation and attention and love, but we would turn to other things that can provide them so much less so than God. And maybe, just maybe, text doesn't say it, but just maybe Ruth was turning to Boaz to redeem her life thinking that he could do it better than God could. I think we're at the same uh, threat. What I would say, going along with Tim Keller here, is that Christ requires our utmost affections and passions. Christ requires, and this is a This is a loaded statement. Christ requires to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. Somebody that lives a Christian life, it would entail and it would require that our utmost affections, our utmost passions, our utmost loves, our utmost adoration, our greatest dependency upon would fall on Christ. And nothing else. Obviously, games and sports can be a source of enjoyment whenever you're looking forward to that more than God to be your source of joy and passion and excitement, there's something that we need to assess in our lives and our hearts and to see because those things will always underdeliver what you're trying to get out of them and it will leave you underfulfilled, Always. 100% of the time. But our hearts are so naturally driven to it and we're always deceived by them but they will always underdeliver compared to God. Always. And so we read that she says, "I am Ruth your servant, take me under your wing for you are a family redeemer." She goes to Boaz asking that he would redeem her life. And his response is, "May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than ever before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor." Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. So I just want to make note of what he just said. Um, What I see here is I think he was pretty flattered by by her saying that to him. Uh, There's pretty good reason to think that Boaz was an older guy to be honest. Um, he, he calls her my daughter like five plus times in the book of Ruth. I don't know if you've realized there's two in one paragraph right here. Um, so he's saying like my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. And this is probably a sign that he's an older guy. Okay, So she's a younger girl going to an older guy. And he even says, wow, you've shown so much kindness that you're not going to go to a younger guy even if they're poor. Thank you for choosing me over them. And so it, it's probably flattering to Boaz that she would go to him. And if it is true that she would go to him in this way of seeing him as an idol that would provide for her redemption more than God, I think his flattery and acceptance of it would also be an issue. So can I just say, can I just say, don't seek out that someone else would find something in you more than they would find in God. So what, what I'm saying there is, is, well, first off, don't be like Ruth and try to find something in someone else what you should find in God. Don't, don't seek out everything in this person that see them as be your everything, but also don't be the one that's like, yeah, I love that they see every, that I'm their everything because you're also deterring them from seeing God as their everything. Does that make sense? That's also idolatry. That is just seeing that, yeah, I love her affirmation. I love her seeing me as everything. I'm not sure if that's really Boaz's heart. I don't know, but I think it's a threat a legitimate threat that's natural to the human character and heart. Um, so we're going to keep going here, but we'll finish up all of this. Yes, it is true that I am a, a family redeemer. So he says, um, you know, that's so nice that you would, you would go to me rather than a young or old um, guy. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than me. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you, but if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she lied down at his feet until morning, uh, but got up while it was still dark. And then Boaz says, said, don't let it be known, for a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl that you're wearing and hold it out. Then she held it out, and he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. Shaw? Shawl? Shawl. Shaw. Sorry, I, I left all my shawls at home, so... Uh. She went into town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. So... We talked last week about how, God, how, how Boaz really shows signs of God's love for us, right? The way that Boaz cares for the way that Boaz loves, and then he provides for Ruth. It shows so well God's love and provision and care for us, right? And we see that again here. Well, first off, he provides again all this. I mean, this guy's got just like barns full of barley just to hand out to her every time they hang out. Um, but he sends her home again with more barley. Take notes, guys. Send her home with six measures of barley. It always works. But he shows a sign, just like God, he's constantly providing, constantly there for, um, but not just that. Not only does he provide for her abundantly, but you see in this passage here, he says, there is a redeemer other than me, but if he doesn't want to redeem you as the Lord lives, I will. He was not obligated to do that. If you look in Deuteronomy 25, he, it, it, there's this requirement of the law that you would be redeemed. A woman, whenever your husband dies, you would be redeemed by her brother's or closest kin whenever he dies you would, you would find somebody and they would marry you and they would have a child with you and, but if they don't want to do it if that brother doesn't want to do it well you, they take off their shoe and they give it to you and you get to spit in their face and you get to shame them publicly uh, but then you don't get a husband and so they can choose not to but then Boaz, the second person in line is not required to do anything he is not required to do anything at all that's just part of the law She's out of luck if this guy doesn't want to uh, redeem her. But Boaz says, you know what? There is someone that should be a redeemer, but if he doesn't want to redeem you, I will. He's not obligated to give to her. He's not obligated to redeem her, to, to give her this new life, but he's willing to. So not only does he provide, but he does it willingly without being obligated. And then you see here at the very end that Naomi says that he will not rest until he resolves this today. This is a sign of God just being relentless in redeeming us that he would relentlessly provide and he would do it because no other reason than he loves us because he doesn't have an obligation to do anything for our sake. He shows a sign, all these signs of God and God's love for us. Boaz is constantly just showing how God loves us. But it's just important that Naomi realizes that he's not God and that he's gonna fail her at some point that he might be able to give all these different things, provide for all these different things, but, he needs, but she needs to see, and I think what we need to see, is at the end of the day, he is not God, and he will never provide or endure or persist nearly like God would, because no one can give and love and care for the way God does. So we should never depend on other things like we should, God. We're gonna go into this time now of of worship we had the worship um, with the band, but now we're going to have some music playing for 10 or 15 minutes. so if you guys want to stand up, you can spread out. But I have one thing that I want to say. I don't know if, um, I don't know if you've been following. I know some families in here are related to the situation, uh, but I don't know if all of you know, there's this family that Sarah and I have been watching, it just on Facebook, just kind of getting their updates, uh, it was just heartbreaking. Um, this family, the webs, um, if some of you know, I got a couple head nods there, you guys know. Um, Bronson is the, uh, the husband, and he has his wife that has been going through this cancer, that has really just been deteriorating her her physical body, and she's been um, bedridden for some time, mentally not there, and they've just really been wrestling with, um, you know, is God going to heal her, or is she going to go home, um, go to heaven Uh, soon? She has been hallucinating. She doesn't even, uh, he was saying in some of these Facebook posts that she doesn't even recognize him half the time. Whenever she looks at pictures with him, she's like, that's not us. Um, She sees green men standing in the room or in the backyard and all these different things. And it's just like, it's heartbreaking because his wife doesn't even see him. But it's amazing. What I want to point out is Bronson's response to it. It could be so easy just to disconnect from God, I think, for so many people that they could just turn away from God and they would seek that other people would, would be there and that that would be their only source of strength and comfort, and because that is an amazing strength and comfort, right, to have all these people band together with us and that he would have people cry with him and to be there for him and to build him up and to be there whenever his wife is not there. He said a while ago, like a week ago, I think, like, my wife is not with me anymore. Physically, she is, but that's it. Today she passed away. But his dependency on God has been, every single post he has put on Facebook is, I'm going to depend on God. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to rely on God. God is going to be my strength in this. Because I think if he had it any other way, it'd be completely understandable. Completely, we would understand that he would turn to other people first, but that hasn't been his response. He would go to God first to be his provider for comfort, for encouragement, for strength. We are called to do that too. And I think rather than asking maybe in, the, in these minutes of just kind of thinking through what the sermon was, rather than asking yourself, you know, what is an idol in my life that I would go to before I would go to God? We, we don't ask that because, because honestly, all of us are like, no, I don't, I don't have any idols I worship. But maybe instead ask yourself, what do I, what do I love so much? What are some of the things I'm so dependent upon the other people that they would give me? What, 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 if, what do I just have such a passion for and then ask, do I go to God to provide that, whatever it provides for me? Would, do I go to God that he would provide for me that much more? Is God my utmost joy, source of joy, my utmost source of strength, encouragement, affirmation, whatever it is? And if he isn't, there lies the idol that we can really struggle with and deal with. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. If you're not already a part of the ET family, we invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. For more information, visit etchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon.